Did somebody say amen to that? <laughs> We've been reading through the Bible in our In the Word series, and this week, if you've been following along, you're reading the book of Numbers. Um, I'm a little ahead of that, and if you're a little behind that, that's fine. But uh, this is kind of the pattern. We're reading the book of Numbers, and so today, we're going to look at the themes of Numbers. Numbers has some interesting themes. Two of them are noteworthy. The first one is numbering. Go figure. There's supposed to be a laugh after that one, but that's okay. It was, it's a dad joke. Um, the, the, the second one is traveling. And you might remember Exodus and Leviticus have this story of, of uh, Israel coming out of the land of Egypt and they go into the desert and um, all these different things happen. They end up at Mount Sinai, they uh, build a tabernacle, they anoint the priesthood, they go through all these rules and laws and stuff and just try to figure out how to be a society in this new environment where they're no longer slaves and under a different government. So all of that's been going on um, and, and then you get to the book of Numbers. And they're still at Mount Sinai. It's about a year after they left Egypt, and they're still at Mount Sinai. But they're about to keep going to Canaan. And in the book of Numbers, we get to Canaan twice. Um, it covers a 40-year period. And uh, at the beginning, in order for them to go to the land of Canaan, they need to do some stuff. And that's where the numbering comes in. They need to organize themselves for service, um, the, the service of God. And so the Levites are numbered. And it's this group that does this and that group that does that. You know, certain ones are supposed to take care of the emblems and certain ones are supposed to be the ones that pack things up and move the tabernacle because if they're going to move this thing they just built, they need to know how and they need to be ordered. And uh, so they number the Levites. And then they also are going to go into some territory that's dangerous and scary and violent. And so they need some soldiers that are prepared. And so they number everybody in Israel that's 20 years and older that's able to go to war. So they're, they're ordering themselves for this march to the land of Canaan. And the book of Numbers tells all kinds of stories. Uh, but the big story, the one that gets the headlines... And the one we're going to talk about today is the story of Israel at the border of Canaan and the 12 spies that get sent into the land of Canaan. Now, we're going to talk about that story, but before we do, we need to have a little bit of a conversation about how Israel ended up ordering themselves. On the screen, you'll see a picture where the tabernacle is in the middle. The uh, Moses and Aaron and their families are... Um, right by the tabernacle, and then you have the other Levite groups that are around the tabernacle, and then around them, uh, and different kind of stretching out to different uh, ends, are all the other 12 tribes of, of Israel. They've ordered themselves around the tabernacle. That's important to note. And there's a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night that sits right over that tabernacle. And they stay there as long as that pillar stays there. That pillar represents the presence of God. It is God who leads them and God who says stay. So when, they, when that pillar of cloud goes, they go. And when that pillar of cloud stops, they build that tabernacle, which gives a certain insight to Isaiah 43, 19 that says, I will make a way in the wilderness. The way of the Israelites is literally God saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. There's another verse in Isaiah that says, you will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. God was the center and focus and director and leader, 
and protector and defender and all of those things of Israel. And he's all of those things for you and me too. Don't forget, by the time that numbers had been written, the Israelites had seen this firsthand. They had seen all the miracles coming out of Egypt. They had seen uh, manna fall from heaven. They'd seen uh, water come out of a rock that had been completely dry before. And then that rock followed them around throughout the book of Numbers. It's a very interesting rock that moves with you in the, in the wilderness, right? Um, and and they'd, they'd also seen this miraculous deliverance from the Amalekites. You know, Moses on the mountain with his arms uh, stretched up and that, that, rod, that rod of deliverance that represented God's power. And that he, while his hands were up and God's power was elevated, they were winning. And when it was down and they were the ones doing the work, they were losing. They knew that God was their leader and their defender. One more thing that we need to remember is the things that God had promised them. Because you, you can know that somebody's your defender, but not know where you're going. But they knew where they were going. Uh, God said in, to, to uh, Abraham in Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. That's a promise. And then to Moses, he said, and, and he made it very, very clear, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Keep that idea in mind because it's going to be a key feature in this main story in the book of Numbers. So fast forward to Numbers chapter 13, and if you want to open there, you can. We're going to look at several verses in Numbers 13 and a few in Numbers 14, starting with verse 1. The Lord now said to, uh, to Moses, "'Send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I am giving to the Israelites.' Send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. Send what kind of a person? Not just anybody, but a leader, somebody who they trusted, somebody that when they came back, they would hear well, and they would say, I'm going to follow them, a leader. And what they were supposed to do when they came back was to tell about what they saw. And the truth, well, the truth is that they, um, they didn't actually say the right things their leadership ended up going uh, down the wrong path. And we'll get to that in a minute, but notice something that uh, Ellen White says in the book Christian Service. The spirit manifested by the leader will be to a great extent reflected in the people. It matters how we lead our families. It matters what we say in our uh, church settings like Sabbath school and, and the pulpit here. It matters what we do in meetings and um, when we're just chatting along the side. And sometimes, be honest with yourself and with me, sometimes we focus more on the negatives, don't we? And sometimes we forget the promises. Hmm. The spirit of the leader will be, to a great extent, reflected by the people. Now, Moses instructed these leaders to do some specific things. He says, go north through the Negev, uh, this uh, uh, desert area, into the hill country and see what the land is like and find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do their towns have walls or are they unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there many trees? Do your best to bring back... Do your best to bring back samples of the crops that you see. And then this last line is worthy of noticing. It happened to be the season for the harvesting of the first ripe grapes. Why do you think the author pointed that out? 
Remember the promise? The promise was, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt and take you into a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a land that is fertile, a land that is fruitful. It happened to be the season of the harvesting of the first ripe grapes. The fruit of the land was evident. There was no ambiguity about this. They weren't coming in when things were like, you know, right at the beginning of spring where you see a shoot or at the end of winter where everything looks kind of dead. No, they were going in during the harvest time where they could see the abundance of the land that God had promised them. But notice there's another little statement, another aside that uh, the author puts in here just, just to point out. And the descendants of Anak were there. The descendants of Anak we're going to hear about in a moment. But let's just say for now that they were bad people. No good, big, strong, bad people. And, and the reality is that the land was a good land flowing with abundance. And there were challenges and obstacles to face. Both were true. In Exodus chapter 23, 28, God had promised Israel something very specific. He said, I will send what? Hornets before you. Anybody been chased by hornets? <laughs> it is not fun to run from hornets. My dad stepped on a hornet's nest in the woods one time, and he had these little hornets all over him, and, and uh, he got out of stung, I don't know, like 13 or 14 times. It was not a happy day, day for him. Um, God says, I'll send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. God has a mighty right arm, he says. He can save. He has done it before. He promised to do it for them. Uh, he can save. There's nothing he can't do. So when the Israelites, these 12 leaders, went into the land of Canaan, what do you think they should have been paying most attention to? The obstacles or the fruits? The fruits. Not because the obstacles aren't real, but because their God is powerful and promised to save. But Numbers chapter 13, 23 points to this amazing fruit and how they brought it back. They came to the valley of Eshkol, cut down from there a branch, a branch with a single cluster of grapes. How many clusters? All right, when you go to Walmart or wherever you buy your groceries and you get a bag of grapes, uh, what's three pounds or something like that, how many clusters of grapes do you find in there? A couple, couple clusters of grapes in a little bag. This Single cluster of grapes was so big that they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs, and who knows what those were like. But the point that the, the story is making is that the fruit was good. The fruit was good. Somebody say amen. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Yes. This is the story of the gospel. The fruit is good. Right? Now, there are, there are obstacles, but here's what happens. Forty days go by, they come back, they bring this big thing of grapes behind them, and they say to the people in Numbers 13, 27, they say, we came to the land to which you sent us, it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They start out really good. Here's the fruit of the land, and if they stopped there, it would have been good. They just should have shut up when they were dealing with their doubts. But then they kept going on, and they said, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large, and besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And then they went on, and they're like, we are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we are. The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Compared to the sons of Anak, we're like grasshoppers, they went on. 
What leaders say matters. What parents say to their children matters. The gossip that we allow to come out of our mouths, it matters, right? It has a huge impact on people. And these 10 leaders, they said, we can't, we can't, we can't. Which was absolutely true, by the way. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They did not have the resources. They did not have the training. They, didn't, they, they were bigger than the Israelites. Um, all of those things were absolutely true. They did not say a lie, except for the part about eating up its inhabitants. That was kind of an overstretch. But other than that, they said the truth. The problem is they did not believe God's promise. Because while they said what was apparently true, what was noble for the human person, what they didn't say was what was true because of God's promise. And that's where the next leaders come in. Notice what Caleb and Joshua said, Numbers 13.30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses. You ever been in a crowd that somebody had to quiet? Oh, the stuff that's stirring up and all the conversations and the worries and it's just spreading like wildfire and, wildfire and Caleb's like, quiet, quiet, no, stop. I need to tell you something really important. And he says, let us go up at once. When? We've already done the evaluation. We've already explored the land. We've seen the fruits are good. Now's the time to go. Let us go up at once and occupy it for we are how able? Well able to overcome it. Confidence. Why? Not because he knew something different than the other guys but because he believed something different than the other guys. He believed in God's promise. If the Lord delights in us... Now, <laughs> this is a... <laughs> there we go. If the Lord delights in us. It, this is a really silly statement, isn't it? Does the Lord delight in Israel? He's brought them up out of Egypt. He's fed them with manna. He's given them water from a rock. He's had so many reasons. They have so many reasons to know that God delights in them. So when he says, if the Lord delights in us, it's a a foregone conclusion that God delights in us. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. You've seen it. And do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. They're like bread for us. Their protection is removed and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What did he say? The Lord is where? The presence of God is right there with them. It's the, the, the smoke and the fire that's over the tabernacle. Where it goes, they should go. The Lord is with us right here. He's our protector. He's our defender. He's our, he's our provider. He's the one that's going to do this. The Lord is with us. That is the key thing that Caleb said. And I guess I'm just wondering, how many times are we like Israel? Standing at the border of Canaan, doubting Considering, worrying, wondering, complaining, rebelling. In uncertainty, even though God has promised, we need to say to each other, let us go up at once. God is with us. We are well able to take that land. I'm going to take a quick detour, but stick with me, and I think you'll see how it connects. Early in Jesus' ministry, he was by a uh, Samaritan town at a, at a well, and he meets this lady that we only know as the woman by the well, or the woman at the well. 
And this woman has this conversation with Jesus. You might be familiar with it. She's not done the best things in her life. Jesus talks about him being the living water. She's excited. She knows that he's the Messiah. She runs back to the Samaritan town she's from, and she tells all of her people, all their neighbors, all the people there, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. And, and it was so exciting to her that it caught on. But uh, as she's leaving, the disciples are coming and they're going to reconnect with Jesus after having shopped for food. Food, you know, like milk and honey and grapes and pomegranates and figs, you know, food. Just making the connection clear here. The, the Israel going in the land of Canaan, it's a land full of plenty. I have food. Jesus then says to them when he refuses to eat the food they bring, he says, I have food that you don't know about. There's some deeper meaning to this food thing. The abundance that we're talking about in Canaan, it's not just about grapes and pomegranates and milk and honey. The abundance is maybe a little different than you're thinking it is. And the disciples are probably confused at this point, but then Jesus clarifies in verse 34 and 35, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. If Israel had said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, what would they have done? They would have gone into the land of Canaan, that's right. But they didn't. They weren't thinking this. They were thinking about all the obstacles. Jesus then says this, there are four months, then comes the harvest. That's what you say. But look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest right now. It is the time of ripe grapes. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples, which would imply that there is a promise here. Where are those ripe grapes? What is this white harvest he's talking about? I think that he's talking about the Samaritan village that's just over the way. And I think he's talking about Israel. And I think he's probably talking about Pasco too. The field is white for harvest. The fruit of the land is good. Will you go in or will you stay on the edge? In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says something similar in verses 37 and 38. He said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. How many of those 12 spies came back with a good report? Two. The laborers are few. The people who are confident in the promise of God are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now go back and imagine the Israelites organizing and then marching towards the land of Canaan. They did everything necessary to prepare. They, they, they had all the, uh, the, the tabernacle stuff in order and all the stuff to cover things and carry things. They had who was going to go where and, and they, they moved in orderly fashion as they followed this pillar and presence of God. They did everything they could to make sure they were prepared. But ultimately, while that was absolutely necessary and commanded by God, they needed to remember that of all of their preparations and all of their skills and all of the talents and assets that they had, they needed God. God was the only one who could bring them into the land. God was their leader. He would be their mighty warrior. Now notice another verse in Matthew. And it sounds kind of like this, go into the land of Canaan, I've given you this land, this is the land of promise. It sounds kind of like that. And it goes like this in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is telling him, 
uh, all the disciples that are listening, I'm the center of your camp. I'm the one who is with you always. I'm the one with the, the power to protect and to provide and to guide. Right? I'm the center of your camp. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you, now go. This is very much like the story of Canaan coming into the land of, uh, sorry, the, the Israelites coming into the land of Canaan. And God has said the same thing to you, just as much as he stood before the disciples and he said, go, I am with you. He is standing here in our midst saying, I am with you, now go into the land. There is a harvest that is ripe and ready to harvest. The Israelites did not plant those grapes. If they had said yes to God, they would have walked into that country, God would have had delivered it into their hands, and they would have lived in houses that they didn't build, in cities that they had not fortified. They would have harvested uh, fields and grapes that they had not planted. In fact, the gospel is kind of like that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, I planted the seed in your hearts. Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. And sometimes we look around us at the, the neighbors, um, the, the people we work with, the people that live just on either side and around this church, and there is a great amount of uncertainty in our hearts. How will we go forward? How will we share the gospel? How can we impact their lives for, for the kingdom? How can we harvest this ripe fruit? How do we even know if it's ripe, right? All of these things go through our minds. And, and I think what we forget is that this is God's field. This is God's harvest. He's simply asked us to go, and he'll show us all along the way. He fed the Israelites without them understanding how. He gave them water without them understanding how that worked. He delivered them from Egypt without them lifting a finger, and he would deliver the land of Canaan into their hands without them doing the work themselves, but they had to go. And there was some organizing that was required, right? They, they had to put themselves in the order God described, but they had to go. And God would be the one that does all the rest. I'd like to ask Jaden and Lisa to join me for a moment. I've got one mic. You've got another one? Okay. I'm going to kind of hold the thought there, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happened last weekend, and then we'll come back to this thought. Okay, so last weekend, come, come, come to the center. Um, last weekend, the three of us went to the uh, Upper Columbia Conference for a church revitalization uh, kickoff weekend. And in this time, they explored all kinds of subjects. It was like, what, what was it like? Just, just the big picture of everything you, you, you heard. What did you feel like when you were there? Go for it. There was just a huge spirit and a drive for sharing the message to our community, to going out and shedding his light to the world. And it just was such a vibrant and really just awe-inspiring weekend filled with great speakers and really great thoughts to chew on. Was there more than, than, than you could like oh, yeah. pack there into was, your brain at once? There was a lot. I had to write a lot in this book I had. 
at the address oh, right open now. Open that up. So, Just show oh, him some of oh, your notes. Yeah. This guy, is he's creative. He, he draws in his notes so that they're like meaningful drawings. I wrote a lot. <laughs> a lot of drawings. Lisa, how did you feel? I have to say that I feel like I'm on fire. And I'm, fi and I'm on fire because I actually want to share with everybody all the wonderful, amazing ideas that each and every one of the speakers brought to us. But I have somebody over here telling me, Lisa, you have to wait. It, there's got to be, there's, there's a timeline. <laughs> and I'm like, but I don't want to wait. I just want to see it done now. Let's and just I do just, it. Let's yeah. just do it. Oh, oh so, so can you tell me one story that you heard that was exciting? Are you sure you want me to tell you? Um, you go for it. Just tell us one story. They're consulting. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, I'm going to let Jaden tell you this story because it really touched my heart too. I was like, it touched my heart for him and for all of our youth in our church. Go ahead. I'll let you tell you. So there was a, a speaker. Uh, he was a pastor. And he was talking about one Sabbath getting ready for church. Uh, he was all dressed up in his nice suit getting ready for the, for the service. And then his son came in. Uh, ripped jeans, a uh, nice polo, a necklace. The dad, nice shoes, nice shoes. The the dad goes, um, son, uh, where's your where's the tie? Where's the where's your college shirt? It it's Sabbath. We're supposed to be dressing in our best. The son goes, this is my best, and that just really spoke to me because no, you got you got to develop oh, well, that thought just a little bit more. more. Keep going. Well, yeah. why was it his best? Because those were like his his best clothes, the things that he had. Oh yeah, he spent. <laughs> I remember now. So he went, Dad, this shirt, it was like 80 bucks. How much did you pay for your shirt? His dad's like a 12. 12. And he says, Dad, these shoes are like $200. How Dad. much are your shoes? And his dad's like, like 40. 40. <laughs> and he understood the value that he was trying to portray himself in the best way that he could to be with his creator, to be with his family, to be in the house of the Lord. I think he put it best in one of his statements. We aren't here to save some genes. I'm here to help save a person. We're not here to judge someone on the base, on the way they look, their clothes. And I'm not saying that we should depreciate the standard. We should like lower the standard for how one should be dressed. But rather, as he put it, people, saving people is raising the standard. Hmm. And yeah, I yeah. just, I really... He, he made an that. interesting statement. He, he, he didn't um, mince any words. He said, when we get to, to the, the second coming and Jesus comes in all his glory, we're not going to be standing there with our hymnals in our hands saying, Lord, we have the hymnals which you gave us. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so one of my favorite stories, that was a very favorite story too, but this one that really like reached my heart very deeply because we have an amazing we have an amazing church but we have an amazing new building right next door and we have a beautiful community that is very close to our church and the pastor this pastor his name i know his last name is hall daniel 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 hall mm -hmm. you guys can google him so you guys can know all about the story a little bit more detail he's actually on facebook anyways and um he graduated from Andrews University or mm -hmm. and, seminary and he was sent to this church in South Carolina and he walks in the church 
On Sabbath morning. Now this is just, no, wait, just for wait. clarification. This is the day in which he's going to be installed. The conference leader has come um, to introduce him as the new pastor of the church. Um, he'd, you know, dressed up in his best. And then he walked in the church and there was nobody, nobody. He was at all the benches were like nice and pretty. He took clear. a picture from the pulpit, nothing, nobody Nothing, there. not one person. It was just him, his wife, and the pastor that was going to ordain him. That was it. And what do you do now? You guys have no idea what this young man did. And he really like touched my heart because we are all capable of doing this. We are all capable of doing just a little bit of, of something. So I don't remember all the little details. Help me out. But I know. <laughs> my, my biggest do, do, impression... Do you, want to tell, do you want to tell the story about the ice cream? Yes. Okay, yes. so it goes something like this. He, he says that service and evangelism have to be connected. You can't have service without evangelism or evangelism without service. They don't work. They have to be connected. And so um, he kept getting these kids that came up to him after church. Now, he'd, he'd done some cool things, and the church had grown. He had uh, 60 people in attendance. Uh, and this was in the last two years. We're not talking about 10-year period. We're talking about in the last two years that this has happened. And uh, so uh, this past year, he had somebody, uh, some kids coming up to him after church and saying, um, I, want I want ice cream, right? <laughs> and he's like, well, we've got potluck, you know, come and eat the food. And they're like, no, I want ice cream. I want ice cream. And these are community kids. They don't go to church. And uh, so what does he do? He went out and he found an ice cream truck. And he hired the ice cream truck for I don't know how many Sabbaths. But he paid for the ice cream truck, just FYI. Before, before, before Sabbath. Sabbath. He covered right, the cost. And yeah. he had an ice cream truck park outside in the parking lot in and the And he church. says, if kids come, give them ice cream free. Yes. Yes. So and they did that. And yes. uh, they did, you know, for a particular period of time. It was after church, right? And, uh, and then the kids kept coming earlier and earlier to get ice cream week after week. And uh, one day, they started sitting on the back pew. And then their parents started sitting with them. Yeah. One of the things that really touched my heart because I think I told Jason and I told several people that what really like impressed me the most is that you guys know I'm from Cuba and you know these kind of stories, I remember them back in the day. I mean here in the United States they happen but I, I had how, how I many had people not, how many people did he baptize? He baptized nine, 90 people last year. Oh yeah, 90, 90 people, people last yes. year. And anyways, so what I was going to say that, you know, I was, I was, I'm used to that. Okay, they go to do evangelistic meetings and all these people get baptized. And I really have never really seen it in person, like, like from someone that I can see face to face. And that really, like, really touched my heart because let me tell you, it could happen right here, guys. It could happen right here in this church. Thank you, guys. Yes. Appreciate it. It was a lot of fun to go with them. My timer just says zero now. This is the problem with setting the timer. <laughs> Can you give me just a couple minutes to wrap this up? See, the question when we have this statement, we are well able to take the land, is how? What do we do? In this particular scenario, it's not like we step across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. It's not, it's not as straightforward as that, or maybe it is. Maybe it is just as simple as that, because what we've made it into is, you know, like, um, how many of you are preachers in there? Just raise your hand. Um, please, please raise your hand. I need somebody for April 6th. No? Okay. The um, thing is, we're not all preachers, but when we think of ministry, we think of 
preaching and giving Bible studies in significant doctrinal subjects that we're not really exactly clear about ourselves, right? That's what we think about when we think about ministry. Um, but look at this. Ellen White said this in a book called Ministry of Healing. It is an amazing book. If you haven't read it, you should read it. This is one of the statements that she makes. Christ's method. That's an interesting word. Are there any other methods? Not that will accomplish this. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them and ministered to their needs. He won their confidence, and then he bade them follow me. I'm going to let that sit on the screen for a minute as we talk about this. This is a proven method, Christ's method, and it, it has to be our method. This is how we step into the land of Canaan, to our Canaan in Pasco. First of all, we have to be where people are. Jesus did not just hang out with people that looked like him and talked like him. Earlier this week, I was in the home of somebody who I don't understand their language. They speak Arabic, we translate on the phone, it's hilarious, we laugh at each other because the translation is bad and we have no idea what we're talking about, but we're having fun. And uh, my wife was there again um, just a couple nights ago. Uh, delightful family, they're Muslims. They're not Adventists, they're not even Christian, but they're wonderful people. And we need to be where people are. Yeah. This week I've had several conversations from a guy in prison. How many of you have been talking to people in prison? No? Okay. Oh, yes, wonderful, fantastic, right? There, sometimes, often actually, we should be hanging out with people who aren't in the same life circumstances as us, Amen. right? We need to hurt with those who hurt and weep with those who weep. We need to, to spend time with people who don't talk like us, who don't smell like us, who don't dress like us, who don't go to the church that we go to. We need to mingle with the people. Uh, that's tool number one. But the second tool, it's kind of two in one. And he says, we need to sympathize. Sympathize means I recognize the need that I see in front of me. We name it, right? Sometimes we sympathize with the easy need, though. We have a beautiful food bank. This is a church of service. We have a fantastic homeless ministry and feeding the homeless and in the, um, uh, the, the, our daily, or the daily bread, anyway, the daily bread ministry that we also do. Our homeless ministries give out hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of meals every single month. And we give out, what, 1,200 baskets of food every single week at our food bank now. That's our, about our average and it keeps growing. Um, this is a church of service, right? But sometimes the thing we see, hungry person, isn't actually the real need. Sometimes we need to spend a little more time with them in order to sympathize and understand. And then he says, minister to their needs. Uh, the man came to Jesus, the leper, and he said, if you want to, you can make me whole. And what did Jesus do? He did something that man needed as much or more than the healing. He touched him. He recognized the deeper need of emotional connection and love, and he spent time with him, and he touched him. He ministered to his needs. And in doing that, we win people's confidence. And that's the, the last point is that we, in, in Jesus' method, we call people to follow Jesus. But we can't call them to follow Jesus unless we've won their confidence. If they don't know they're loved by God and by us, they won't be interested in hearing whatever theological thing that we have to share. 
I used to live and do Bible work in New York City, and as I walked from place to place, I'd occasionally come across somebody who's preaching on the street corner. The Rastafarians like to do it, the Black Sons of Israel like, like to do it, and there's various uh, Pentecostal groups and a, you know, a variety of people, the, the people that like to take um, the, the, the microphone around and, and catch people and say, um, you know, are you a good person? And, uh, well, did you break the law? Well, you know, and all these interesting things, trying to get them to realize they have a need for a savior. And, uh, and honestly, all of these ideas that were shared, and, and the, the Rastafarians were fun. They would have one person after another on a, on a corner or on a little stage, and, and they'd preach for 10 or 15 minutes, and they'd be all energetic, and they'd lose their steam. And so the next person would get up, and they'd step down, and they'd preach for 20 or 30 minutes, and they'd lose their steam. And then the guy that wasn't really good at it would get up, and they would read something. <laughs> and they'd do that for hours. And, and every once in a while, you'd see people like stop and listen and, and maybe debate with them. But honestly, they weren't winning any hearts because what they were engaging with was argumentation of the mind, theory, and doctrine. And the gospel, while it is a true story that we need to get right, theology is important because it helps us understand who God really is. Theology doesn't connect with my heart, but Jesus wants to have a real experiential relationship with you. Experiential meaning that's something that you can interact with, right? Victory over sin is a gift he wants to give you. And when you find yourself totally um, burdened down with an addiction and then freed, that is an experience you won't forget, right? And, and uh, maybe uh, anger is something that you're tied down with. Jesus wants to give you peace. Anxiety is something you're burdened with, and Jesus wants to, to, to give you hope, right? These are things that God promises to give you. It's an experiential thing. The gospel isn't just theory. And that quote about uh, Christ's method alone, it, it continues on. It says, there is need of coming close to the people by personal effort. I preach up here and 90% of what I say you forget. Probably 99, um, <laughs> right? But, well, thank you, John. John remembers some of it, <laughs> right? What I say might matter a little bit. But you know what matters more is when we're in people's homes. We can talk about this, listen to a sermon or whatever, but when we go to somebody's home and we interact with some real life issues, some uh, struggle that they're dealing with, and we show care and concern, we pray with them, we maybe read a, a, a verse of hope with them, that sticks, that, that touches the heart, that makes an impact. There's need of coming close to the people by personal effort. If less time were given to what? Sermonizing. This, this quote is not good for pastors. <laughs> if less time were given to sermonizing and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. You know what this means? This means that my job preaching is not the primary focus of this church. It is your work in doing personal work and ministry in this community that matters more. Maybe... Maybe someday we should take a Sabbath and we should come in our jeans and our t-shirts and we should pack a bunch of lunches and we should all go out and do real church and minister coming close to somebody. Amen. Maybe, maybe our homeless ministries could collaborate to organize a Sabbath where we do that. Amen. Huh. The poor are to be relieved, the sick cared for, the sorrowing and bereaved comforted, and the ignorant instructed, the inexperienced counseled. This isn't just give your food away. This is significant time with people that, 
and, and the love and compassion, right? We are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, notice this last sentence. Accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, and the power of the love of God, this work will not, cannot, be without what? Fruit. Fruit, you know, like the big grapes that they found in Canaan. This work bears fruit, and the fruit is a life saved. The fruit is another person added to our church family. Now, I, I, just, want to, I just want to point this out. The fields of Pasco are ripe, and Tri-Cities, and the Columbia Basin, they are ripe. They are hurting homes that need the gospel, and people that will respond if we go into this land. There are 80,000 people that live in Pasco right now. How many of them are participating in our church? About less than one quarter of one percent. Less than one quarter of one percent are participating with our church in Pasco. I'm not talking about the Richland Church or the Kennewick Church or, you know, the, whatever. I'm just talking about this context. 80,000 people. Can we minister to more? There's an average of about 154 people over the last six months that sit in these pews every week. We can fit 250. There's not enough people packed up there, right? There's, there's space on the front. Why, why do we use this for presenters? We should pack this place, right? And, and there's every reason, because the story that we have to tell, the experiential knowledge of Jesus that we have to share is life-transforming. It is wonderful. I, I want to tell you, people don't come to church for the good preaching, Maybe you did today. God bless you. I'm sorry. Um, people don't come to church, and they don't stay because of the good preaching. Now, they might go because of really bad preaching, but they, they, they don't stay for the good preaching. What they do is they come to a community where they know that they are loved by God and by others, and they stay in a community where they know that they are family and that they will not be left behind. We need to be that kind of community, and I know that when we go into that to this neighborhood and to your neighborhood around your home, when we go into that neighborhood, there is fruit. And there's room in this church for them to come in. We could seat 250 on the first service. We can add a second service that seats another 250. We have an event center where we could put another 150. We could serve 600 members or 600 active participants in this church. I just Are you thinking about this? Is this something that... You can see in your mind, is this land a good land? Are we well able to take it? Should we go up at once? Amen. Amen. Uh, somebody told me, and um, I'm sorry, uh, I didn't get your permission to say this, but somebody said, Jason, I'm sorry, if your idea was to make this church a mega church, then that's just never going to happen. We are a community church. And I say, amen, I have no interest in mega anything. What I have an interest in is harvesting the fruit of the kingdom. And if this church can do any part of that, one soul, then we should do our part in that. And if there's 600, great. And if there's 1,200, let's plant a new church, great. Like, we don't, we don't need to be constrained. This building, it's a temporary thing. Forget how much it costs. Forget how much we put into that building next door. It doesn't matter. It is a tool for the kingdom of God. And when we use it for that purpose, then it will accomplish great things. Our motto that we talked about in our board meeting recently was serve one more. And we want to do this with these core values that our, our whole existence is about, and I'm going to add a word, extravagant service. I'm not talking about the little thing that you do, you know, here's a dollar. 
I'm talking about extravagant service that reaches into people's lives and brings the love of God to their hearts. And I'm saying another core value is excellence. Let's not do things haphazardly or badly. Let's order ourselves in a way that we can be successful. We need to have authenticity. None of this, this uh, fakeness. You came to church a sinner, a broken, needy sinner, and so did the person next to you. You're welcome to turn to them and say, you're a sinner just like me. <laughs> did that feel weird? <laughs> no. <laughs> we all are, right? None of us are good enough for the kingdom. It's only Jesus that makes us righteous. But we sometimes come with facades and we try to look good and we just need to stop doing that. We need to be authentic. I am a sinner that is filled with regret and I've been saved by grace and filled with hope. And we need to do things that are relevant. We're going to start to do some question asking in our community and, and we're going to ask what are the real needs and it's one thing to give away food. We have a fantastic ministry that does that. Thank you so much to all who participate in that ministry. But it's one thing to give away food, but quite another to solve a systemic issue. I, I wonder if God might want us to uh, adapt, shift, add, change. I don't know. Maybe this is exactly where he wants us to be, but we need to be asking the question, Lord, what errand would you have us go on? Let us be relevant to the needs of our community. And we need to, to do everything with compassion. Compassion is the thing that Jesus had when the crowds chased after him when he was tired. Anybody tired? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The crowds chased after Jesus, and in his tiredness, the Bible says, he looked at them and he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. And he stopped and he gave, and God gave back to him. Because when we give to the poor, the poor in spirit, the poor literally, when we give to the poor, we lend to God and he will repay. And lastly, humility. There is nothing that we have, nothing that we have of special importance. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that is worthy of our praise. Amen. Jesus says, I am the way the truth and the life. Jesus is the way in the desert. Jesus is the way for us. And it's his method alone that we should be following. Let's, whatever comes in the next few months, and there's going to be some fun things that we do. The ministry placement committee that we're just getting started, that's the first reading was in your bulletin today, and next week we'll do the second. Uh, that ministry placement committee is designed to do something very important for our church family. And that's to activate every single one of us sitting in these pews at whatever stage in life you're at in service for God. That's, it's not just the list of names that we're going to be filling. We're going to be asking, how has God called you? And how can we activate your skills and your passions and your gifts in ministry? And we're going to do some other stuff. This summer, we're planning on a VBS in the park because we need to be in our community. And we need to be caring about our, the children in our community. And when we focus on the children in our community, guess who comes with them? And when we focus on the children in our community and the parents come along, guess who else comes? The grandparents come too. We need to be investing in the children in our community. And so we're going to do a VBS in the park. I'm saying this by faith. If I have to be the only one out there and we have a bounce house and a shaved ice machine and I'm singing some songs on my guitar, we're going to do a VBS in the park. But I really, really hope that some of you say, I'm all in on that. We're going to reach the community for Jesus. 
And in the fall, we're going to do an evangelistic series. And we're going to do something crazy because I heard Brian do it and I was already planning on doing it. Lisa, where are you? Where'd Lisa go? Ah, there she is. I was already planning on doing a Jesus Wins seminar, and we'll still keep that theme, um, but Brian uh, Hall described how he did it, and I said, that's, that's definitely what we're going to do. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to partner with our Hispanic church, the Pasco Spanish Church, and we're going to throw a, a double evangelistic series, Spanish and English, both at the same time, 10 days, and every single day, we're going to give away something to children that's of value, a backpack for school, some shoes for a growing kid. We're going to give stuff away. And, uh, and we're, going to, we're going to invite the community to come, not to an evangelistic series, but some nights of inspiration and some free giveaways. Come for the things, right? And we're going to share the love of Jesus with you. Jesus wins. And uh, I don't know about you, but I think when we care extravagantly, when we share generously, people say that that's worth something. And not for any agenda. We don't have an agenda to make Adventists, to bring people into this church or whatever. Our agenda is simply to be love in place of Jesus, to be his hands and feet. And I know that when we do that, the Holy Spirit will do what he does best, and he will convict and he will draw. Will you join me on this journey? Are you willing to step into the land of Canaan and to take and harvest the fruit that God has, has promised us? I hear some amens. I see some uncertainties. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I don't know where this journey is going to take us, but I know it's going to be a great thing. God is with us. Will you stand with me and sing a song? Um, this is a song that Ezra asked to sing, and uh, I have to admit... I don't know this song very well. I learned it yesterday, but it's a great song. Could you go?